and turn to the book of Romans chapter 1. We pick up where we left off two Sundays ago with verse 21 of Romans chapter 1. And today I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Children may be dismissed for Children's Church. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Is God a glory hog? Is He a cosmic prima donna who refuses to share the limelight of the universe with any others? Is God selfish? To the casual observer, it might appear so. Because the Bible says, in fact, God Himself says in the book of Isaiah, the 43rd chapter in the 7th verse, He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. In the Word of God recorded in Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2, this is what the Bible says, Ascribe glory and strength to the Lord. Ascribe glory that is due to His name. And then in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, the Bible says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. But we cannot be casual in our observation of God and at the same time be right in our opinion of God. In this passage of Scripture, which we're considering today, verse 21 says, they, and they are referring to those who had suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They knew who God was, but they had refused to accept the truth. They had suppressed it. They had pushed it down. They did not honor Him. The word translated honor more literally would be translated, they did not glorify God. This word glorify comes from the word dokeo, which in the language of the New Testament means to seem or to appear. The noun which is derived from this word, doxa, is a word which means opinion initially. It's translated glory in most places. And when it was first used in the Greek language, it was used to describe good opinions and bad opinions. It later came to only refer to good opinions. So when we think of the glory of God, we're thinking about the opinion which we have of God. And included in the idea of the glory of God is a composite of all the attributes of God. All the various characteristics and traits of God are wrapped up in this idea of the glory of God. Perhaps you're familiar with the fact that God revealed Himself to Moses one day. Moses had been communing with God on Mount Sinai. And he found himself in such close proximity to God in his relationship to God that God said, Moses, I'm going to reveal myself to you. Now, it was believed, and accurately so, that no one could see God and survive the experience. The glory of God would have been so overwhelming, if God were to reveal Himself to an individual, it would literally have killed that individual. So God took Moses some way or another and tucked him away in a cleft in a rock, in a little cave. And He said, I'm going to pass by, Moses, and when I pass by, I'm only going to show you my back. And the word which is translated back in Exodus 33 to describe this experience is actually the word for the calf of one's leg. I'm only going to show you the calf, suggesting that he could not survive if he were shown the whole person of God, all the glory of God. So he passed by. And when he passed by, Moses heard the voice of God. And this is what God was overheard to say about himself 
I am the Lord, the Lord God, full of compassion and grace, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, forgiving iniquity. And in saying that, God was just giving Moses a small glance, a small glimpse of who he was in all of his glory. Once a person sees God, he has a right opinion of God. Therefore, the person glorifies God. Obviously, Moses knew that. We have his words, or God's words, recorded in Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. All those five books are ascribed to him. And these words which I've just mentioned from Exodus 34-7, which reveal some of the characteristics of God, they were the opinion that Moses got as a result of seeing the glory of God. We... People suppress the truth regarding God. We saw last time we looked in the book of Romans, there are four basic traits of God which are most commonly suppressed. For instance, the sovereignty of God. God is the ruler of all creation. He's in charge. And men like to suppress that because we like to be in charge. We like to think of ourselves as being autonomous, laws unto ourselves. We don't like the concept of the sovereignty of God. We don't like to acknowledge Him as our Lord. We also suppress the concept of the holiness of God because in His holiness, God exposes our sinfulness. So we like to play the holiness of God down. We also have a tendency to play down not only the sovereignty of God and the holiness of God, but also the omniscience of God, the fact that God knows everything because we're afraid we'll be exposed, we'll be found out by God if He knows everything. And then lastly, we saw how we tend to suppress the truth about the fact that God never changes. The theologians call this the immutability of God because if God never changes, then His sovereignty never changes. His holiness never changes, nor does His omniscience change. Also in the book of Isaiah, this is what we hear the Word of God say. God Himself says, Those whom I call by My name, I created for My glory. Why were you created? Why was I created? We were created for the glory of God, for the honor of God, for the praise of God, for the worship of God. It should begin then to become clear to us why God says, I will not give my glory to another. Because later in the book of Romans, you're familiar with the fact that God says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short. Man in his original creation and intention was to be a perfect reflection of the glory of God. But man sinned. And the result of that is that we fall short of the glory of God. We were created in God's image to reflect God's glory. You're familiar with the fact also that in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says, God speaks, let us make man in our own image. And when we think about the image of God, obviously we're not thinking about God as a physical being because God is spirit, the Bible tells us. But when we think about God and how we may in some way reflect the image of God, we know that God is relational because He said, let us. There's community within the Godhead. We call it the Trinity. Also, when we are in right relationship with each other, and we love each other, and we fulfill all the commands of Scripture as they relate to proper relationships within the body of Christ, we reflect the glory of God. Another aspect of the image of God, in addition to the fact that God is relational, God is also rational. He has a mind and He thinks. He expresses His thoughts to us in the Bible. He expressed Himself most clearly to us in the person of Jesus. He says about Jesus that Jesus is the Word. 
who became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have been able to experience the glory of God in that sense. And we too are rational. When we use our minds, and this is a hard thing for us to do in this day and time, to really use our minds to love God. It's not just about your feelings. It's not just about my feelings. It's more importantly about the mind because it's through the mind that God gives truth to us which impacts our will and our emotions. We need to learn to love the Lord our God with all of our mind. And in so doing, we will be reflecting the glory of God. Another aspect of the image of God is that God is not only relational. He's not only rational, but He's also responsible. Have you ever stopped to think about that? That within the Trinity, there's a division of responsibility. What is God the Father's responsibility? God the Father is responsible for ruling the universe. What about Jesus? What is His deal? Jesus' responsibility is to be the Redeemer. He's the one who has secured our salvation. And the Spirit of God, what is the Holy Spirit's responsibility? His responsibility is to be the Revealer. He reveals God to us. Now, when you and I are in Christ... The Bible says we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And when we're doing the good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do, that is, when we are fulfilling our responsibility, we will reflect the glory of God as well. We were created, according to the book of Psalms, in the 8th Psalm, we were created just a little lower, not than the angels, as the authorized version says, but a little lower than God. The word is Elohim. We were created a little lower than God. What an incredible, incredible opportunity. Because God created us so that we would reflect His glory. To refuse to honor God, to refuse to glorify God, is dangerous. In Acts chapter 12, verses 12 and 23, the story is told about King Herod. And he was in front of some of his subjects in Tyre and Sidon. And he was giving what must have been a very moving and eloquent speech. And when he was finished, the people in unison began to cry out, The voice of a God and not of a man. And rather than correct their misconception, Herod allowed them to continue to cry out, A voice of a God and not the voice of a man. And the Bible tells us the result of that was that an angel of the Lord came and struck him dead because he sought to rob God of his glory. It is true that to refuse to honor God is dangerous. And why? Well, for three reasons that surface in this passage of Scripture. First of all, because a refusal for me to glorify God or to honor God results in ingratitude in my life. Fyodor Dostoevsky, in his notes from the underground, made this statement. He said, If he is not stupid, he is monstrously ungrateful, phenomenally ungrateful. In fact, I believe that the best definition of man is ungrateful biped. This was Fyodor Dostoevsky's, the great Russian novelist, viewpoint of man. We are innately, it seems, as a result of our sinfulness, people who are ungrateful. In his book entitled In Two Minds, Os Guinness talks about the subject of doubt. And listen carefully to his perception. It's a very accurate perception of what constitutes doubt. He says, doubt is not unbelief but it is the middle point between unbelief and faith. He says there's nothing wrong with doubting, but you cannot stay at the position of doubting long because it's such a volatile state, it's unstable, and you'll either go one of two directions. 
And the direction in which we go will be determined by how we deal with what causes us to be unsettled. If we're dealing with it properly, we'll trust God and we'll move closer to God. If we leave God out of the equation as these about whom Paul is writing here, then we will go away from God. That's what will happen. In that book, he talks about that there are basically seven families of doubt. Now, you can rest assured I'm not going to talk about all seven this morning. We don't have time for that this morning. The different families of doubt have to, be with a wrong, have to do with a wrong perception of God, a weak foundation, a lack of commitment, a lack of growth, unruly emotions, and he said, sixthly, fearing what it might cost us to believe. But at the very head of what he talks about, the first subject with which he deals as it relates to doubt, and this was surprising to me, is ingratitude. Why is ingratitude so much a contributing factor to doubt? Why is it so dangerous? It's because it's based on a willful unawareness of the most basic facts regarding God. Now let's go back and revisit verses 18 through 20, which we looked at two Sundays ago to jog our memories about the willful unawareness, the refusal on the part of these people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness to really believe who God is. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Now catch this. Not only do we have the internal witness as a result of our being created in God's image. Not only do we have that internal witness that there is a God, and everyone has it, whether he or she is willing to admit it. But we also have the external witness of creation. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. You see, unbelief is the result of refusing to accept the truth about God as revealed in creation, at least, and even more specifically in the Word of God, and even more specifically in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the Word with a capital W of God. Unbelief has a short and ungrateful memory. Now let me appeal once more to the history of Israel. You may remember how God delivered the children of Israel miraculously, After having been in slavery for over 400 years, the idea of freedom, they probably didn't even have a concept of what would constitute freedom. And then all of a sudden, God springs them out of their slavery through the great man we know as Moses. And you remember how God used ten plagues to deliver them, and they went through the Red Sea, and when they got on the other side of the Red Sea, what did God do for them? God provided for them. He provided water, and He provided food in the form of manna. And He provided protection during the day as they were walking through the desert. His glory resided in a cloud that covered this vast throng of people. Over one million people, it kept them sheltered from the sun of that hot desert area. And then at night, it provided warmth as the glory of God came through and provided warmth. The presence of God. Yet they were so quick to forget, weren't they? They wanted a new leader. They said, Moses is not getting it done, Lord. Let's get him out of here. Cut him, God. We need a new leader. And they said, take us back. We want a leader who will take us back to Egypt. In Scripture, the concept of Egypt is representative of the world. It's the way things were when we were under bondage. 
when we were not yet sprung from the jailhouse of sin by the Spirit of God and by the blood of Christ. And so we all want to see the tendency in us, we do see this from time to time at least, of our going back. Listen to what God says through Moses at the end of that 40-year period of wandering in the wilderness. You know, they were penalized. But do you remember what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 12? Listen carefully. He says, Be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It's so easy and we so quickly forget what God has done. We're not grateful enough. The mark of those who forget, who repress the truth, is the mark of ingratitude. Are we grateful? Are you a grateful person? Do you make a habit of being grateful to the Lord for the things which He provides for you? The food you eat, the water you drink. Every time I go to get a drink of water, I thank the Lord for the water. I've cultivated that habit over the years. And it would be a good habit for all of us to cultivate for everything. Because it's very clear in Scripture that everything which we have is a gift from God. The only kind of gift which He can give is that kind of gift. When we pray, what constitutes the bulk of our praying? There's a tendency for us just to ask God to do stuff, do stuff, do stuff. But when we look at Scripture, when we see the model prayer that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount, He begins by hallowing the name of God. There's always this beginning point of thankfulness and gratitude. It is true that a failure to glorify God is dangerous because it results in ingratitude. But it also results in ignorance. Let's look again at our passage of Scripture. Verse 21, in the middle of it, it says, They became futile in their speculations. The word translated speculations is the word from which we get our English word dialogue. The idea is the working of the mind apart from the revelation of God. Now remember, God had revealed Himself to these people through creation. And He has done that for all of us. So God is working. He's revealing Himself. But what do some people do? They suppress that truth. They push it back. Then they push it down. Then they stuff it away somewhere where it will no longer haunt them because they come face to face with their own need to be ruled by someone outside of themselves, to be ruled by God, for Jesus to be the Lord. It's this idea of their becoming as they were foolish and futile in their speculations is the idea of using the mind to rearrange error. That's really what people do who don't know Christ. And I'm afraid that they just don't get it because God has not revealed this truth to them. Now let's read a little further in verse 21. Their foolish heart was darkened. There's no way that we can plumb the depths of what is meant here by Paul when he says the foolish heart was darkened. But he gives us some insight when we look at what he says about this matter In Ephesians chapter 4, speaking of the same group of people, he says, they are darkened in their understanding. It's as if blinders have been placed upon their eyes. And that's easy to understand because the Bible is very clear that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Blinders. They are darkened in their understanding. And as a result, they are separated from the life of God. What a horrible thing to be separated from the life of God. Because, the Bible goes on to say, because of their ignorance due to the hardening of their hearts, i.e. due to their sin in their life, their foolish heart was darkened. They were ignorant spiritually. 
Now look at verse 21, a very brief verse. Professing to be wise, they became fools. The word translated wise is sophos, from which we get our word family philosophical, philosophy, philosopher, sophisticated, sophisticate. All that word family comes from this word. A person who is worldly wise, the person who has suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, who is ignorant spiritually because his or her eyes have not been enlightened by the Spirit of God, is not happy with the data that comes in through his or her senses because of the direction in which it points. When we look at the beauty of this day, isn't this a great day? It's a beautiful day. October is my favorite month. And I think it's the greatest month in the Northern Hemisphere probably all over the world. Beautiful. And when you see what comes in through your eyes and you sense that, it points in one direction. It points to someone bigger than I and bigger than you. It points to God. But people don't like that. Therefore, instead of using the mind to pursue truth, they use it to provide philosophical justifications for their actions. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. Understand there is a distinction between philosophy and and the revelation of God through Jesus Christ, through His Word, and through creation. It's something that God has to do that is external to our minds. It comes through our minds, yes. But if you're banking on your own intellect to give you insight and understanding of who God is, you will be banking on that to the moment you die. Because it's not intellect enough, it has to be revealed to us. That's why a little child, seven or eight or nine-year-old child, can receive Jesus Christ... And a man who is very well educated, and I have nothing against good education, but a man or a woman who's very well educated just doesn't get this simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason is because it has not been revealed. Now, lastly, before we go on to the third result, professing to be wise, verse 22 says, they became fools. And the word which is translated, they became fools, is a verb It comes from the root word moros, from which we get our word moron. And the word moron here is not speaking of intellectual deficit. It's not talking about being a dummy. Rather, it's talking about being a moral fool. Immorality, moral foolishness, is the result, the inevitable result, of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Always. We suppress the truth. We want to push God away so that we can do what we want to do. And the result is this idea of moral foolishness. And it's devastating. I've mentioned the name Friedrich Nietzsche before, recently. This man who declared God is dead. Do you know that Nietzsche died in an insane asylum? A basket case? Ernest Hemingway held the distinction of winning both the Pulitzer and the Nobel Prizes. At the age of 27, he said this, The real reason for not committing suicide is because you always know how sweet life gets after the hell of the depression is over. Two years later, his own father committed suicide. Thirty-four years later, he took a double-barrel shotgun, stuck it to his forehead, pulled the trigger, and killed himself. This is the man who said mockingly, Our nada, who art in heaven, nada be thy name. Here was a man who was raised in the privilege of a home where the Bible was held to be the Word of God. And he outrightly rejected it. And he rejected God. And look what it led to in his life. 
It led to futility. It led to a life that was a wasted life. Well, the last thing that refusing to glorify God results in is idolatry. And we don't think of ourselves as idolaters probably. There aren't many of you who have some kind of carved idol that you bow to and worship in your home. But the truth is, we all have that tendency. In fact, this is where Adam and Eve got into trouble. Remember when the serpent came and spoke to Eve? What did the serpent say to Eve? If you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like who? God. Now, she was already like God because God had created her in His image. She wasn't God, but she and Adam wanted to be God. That's the problem. They made an idol out of themselves. And let's look at verse 23. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. Now imagine this. For an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. The truth is, all idolatry centers in self. It all comes back to me. Someone has said an idol is an idol. It's really what it is. It's about me. And all kinds of expressions of idolatry, whether it's greed, because the Bible says in the book of Colossians, greed is idolatry, or a desire to be famous, or a desire for power, a desire for inordinate sex outside the boundaries God has established, celebrity, sports, education. You go on and on and on. You can write your own list of the potential idols. But the Bible is very clear. The first commandment, what is the first commandment in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. What is the second? You shall not make for yourself any graven image. No idols. Yet that is our tendency. And it's the inevitable result. It's the downward plunge that takes people, when they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, they become people who do not glorify God. They suffer ingratitude and then ignorance and then idolatry. We're going to see in the coming Sundays about how God gives people over to their own wishes. If they want to go that way, they are given over. Now, it might come as a surprise to some of you. It did to me, actually, when I was doing this study. A book by the name of Robert Brown, a book by a man named Robert Brown, titled Religions, Origins, and Ideas, talks about how initially anthropologists, not Christian anthropologists now, but anthropologists have discovered that originally all the cultures of the world were monotheistic. That is to say, they had one God whom they worshipped. And then only later did they become polytheistic, meaning they had a pantheon of gods. They had many gods. Because they felt like if they could have a God that they made, then they could control that God, and He was less likely to create fear in their hearts than having a one God. And then lastly, what has happened is animism, where people worship God in nature. Now, we would think that the most primitive religions would have thought of animism as the beginning point, just sort of an evolution of religion, right? But what we've seen is, we've seen a devolution instead of an evolution. But that should come as no surprise when we see what we see in this passage of Scripture. What happens when men suppress the truth about who God is and they reject who God is, what happens is they go from being monotheistic to being polytheistic until they worship nature. Are there any tree huggers in your sphere of awareness? Probably. Now, the creation is a reflection of who God is, but be sure, creation is not God. God's not in a tree or a stone 
He's not in an animal somewhere. If He's in anywhere, He's in His people whom He has redeemed by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. As we complete our consideration of these verses today, maybe you're here today and you've recognized that you're a person who is characterized by ingratitude or ignorance or idolatry or maybe a combination of more than one, maybe all three. And you realize that that has the effect of separating you from God. And you know you need to make that right. You may wonder, maybe I've gone so deeply into my own self, into my own sin, that it's impossible. Well, let me be sure to let you know it's not impossible. You know Nebuchadnezzar? We read about him just a moment ago. Nebuchadnezzar, this king, and he was extolling his virtues. My kingdom, my majesty, remember that? And then what happened to him? All of a sudden, just that quickly, he started acting like a cow. And you know there is a mental illness on the books today called lycanthropy, which is, he's a textbook case of, actually. And for seven years, he just kind of roamed around in the pastures, Eating grass, just like a, a bovine. Just eating, eating grass. And then all of a sudden, do you remember what he said? How did he get his bearings back? How did he do it? The Bible says he looked toward heaven and he began to praise God, didn't he? He began to glorify God. He began to worship God. And the Bible says his sanity was restored to him. Some of you are suffering from borderline insanity, maybe. And your life is just all out of whack. May I tell you where the answer to be is, to, is to be found? It's to be found in redirecting your focus off of yourself onto God. Begin to glorify God. Begin to honor God. And the beginning place for that is in the person of Jesus Christ. By yielding to Him and letting Him be your Lord and your boss. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank You for Your Word and how it will not return to You empty. I trust that, Lord. I pray that You would take this teaching... And God, that you would impress it upon our hearts. Forgive us, Lord, for being people who, in many cases, know you, but who act as if we don't. We are so ungrateful, Lord. Forgive me for my ingratitude. And Lord, forgive me for my idolatry. Forgive me for letting sin block your revelation to me. And oh God, we pray that your spirit would move now.